Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Research has shown that cannabinoids have a therapeutic effect on nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy. However, in some patients, chronic use of cannabis can lead to the opposite, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, which includes cyclic episodes of nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain that may not respond to traditional antiemetics. Joining us today is Dr. Rachel Sheehan from Mayo Clinic Health System in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, to review the pathophysiology of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, its clinical features, and treatment options, including a focus on recent topical capsation. Let's listen in. This podcast is getting spicy. For a little background, in 2019, there was a survey that was done, and 18% of Americans reported using marijuana at least one time within the year. That's 48.2 million people. The same survey did find that 46% of Americans had reported having ever used marijuana. And then kind of looking at our cannabis hyperemesis syndrome patients or our CHS patients, these patients on average will visit the emergency department 17.9 times prior to being diagnosed with CHS. Additionally, looking at these visits on average, the total cost for these visits will be along with any of the radiological exams that they have is on average $77,000 per patient prior to diagnosis. As many of you are probably aware, cannabis has been linked to a therapeutic effect on nausea and vomiting, which is associated with HIV or AIDS, as well as chemotherapy. CHS itself was first described in the literature in 2004, and the diagnostic criteria was first published in 2012. So the reason I'm really discussing this today is related to legalization and the increased use that we have seen related to this. Cannabis was first legalized recreationally in Colorado in 2012. Of note, the first state to actually legalize marijuana use in any capacity was California back in 1996. Um, since Co Colorado had um, legalized marijuana recreationally, they did see a 29% increase in annual vomiting-related emergency department healthcare encounters. Additionally, when looking at statewide cyclical vomiting hospitalizations five years following that legalization and comparing that to the pre-legalization period, they saw a 46% increase in those hospitalizations. Currently, there are 37 states that have legalized cannabis in any capacity. All 37 of those have medical use legalized, along with 18 of those having recreational use also legalized. Kind of a little closer to home, though, um, Minnesota did legalize medical use in 2014. And then more recently, Michigan legalized recreational use in 2019, with Illinois following them in 2020 with recreational use as well. Um, of note, also Wisconsin does not currently have any legalization aside from CBD use. These are the objectives I will be discussing today. First, I'll jump into the pathophysiology. So I'll be talking about the endocannabinoid system, or ECS. There are two receptors that I'll be focusing on today, which are CD1, or the cannabinoid 1 receptor, 
and the cannabinoid 2 receptor or CB2. CB1 is located centrally and peripherally, is located on our um, motor, secretary, and sensory afferent neurons located within the gut and the peripheral nervous system. Conversely, CB2 is located on immune cells as well as neurons in the epithelium and the gut wall. Um, a little disclaimer about the images used throughout the presentation. They're not intended to represent the true location but more or true representation of what's going on, but more intended for learning purposes and to facilitate that learning. So on the top of the slide here, we have our neuron and we have our CB1 receptors in red, as well as our CB2 receptors in purple. We'll kind of, I'll use this throughout the presentation to help facilitate some of the things I'll be discussing. And then just for completeness sake, I have an immune cell here at the bottom of the slide with our CB2 receptors. So what happens when these receptors are stimulated? When CB1 is stimulated, we see a decrease in gut motility and gut secretion. And when CB2 receptors are stimulated, we see a decrease in inflammation and immune activation. So you may be wondering, how can cannabis be both anti-emetic and pro-emetic? First, I'll discuss the anti-emetic hypothesis and to understand that we kind of need a baseline understanding of what's going on. So nausea and vomiting during stress or when the body is under stress is mediated via the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis or HPA as I will refer to it throughout the slides, as well as the brainstem. So when we have a stressful situation, we have an increased release of adrenocorticotropin hormone or ACTH, which therefore increases HPA activity. With that increase of HPA activity, we see um, a prolematic state, which can lead to emesis. So the ECS actually does act upon the HPA and it has neg a negative feedback that it displays upon that, therefore leading to decreased HPA activity, which leads to anti-emetic properties. The exact mechanism for this is not known. However, it is thought to be associated with CD1 receptor stimulation within the central nervous system as they have found that CB1 receptor quantity does decrease during stress. Next, I'll discuss four pro-emetic hypotheses as listed here on the slide. One thing I do wanna note is I will use the abbreviation for the transient receptor potential vanilloid one um, receptor or TRPV1 throughout the rest of the slide. So I just wanna bring your attention to that first. The first hypothesis I will discuss is related to stress and food deprivation. Um, one thing I forgot to mention on the last slide is that all of these hypotheses are in the setting of chronic long-term cannabis use. So that's something important to think about. Here on the slide, we have a fat cell or adipose tissue. As many of you are probably aware, THC is a lipophilic molecule, so it is stored within our fat cells. In the presence of stress, we have that release of ACTH, which therefore acts upon the um, adipose tissue leading to lipolysis and therefore release of the THC into the bloodstream. That process continues and we have further release of THC into the bloodstream and it is thought that increased levels of THC in the bloodstream are um, pro-emetic. The next hypothesis I will discuss is related to THC potency. Increased or higher THC potency is thought to be associated with pro-emetic properties Meanwhile, lower or decreased THC potency is thought to be associated with anti-emetic properties. 
something I would like to just bring note to is that the THC content, both within marijuana plants, as well as the concentrates that people use in like vape pens has increased over time. So that's something important to consider here when thinking about this um, hypothesis in general. The third hypothesis is related to CB1 receptor downregulation. So like I mentioned, I will be using this neuron throughout the presentation. We've got our CB1 receptors in red and our CB2 receptors in purple. In the presence of THC, and this is ex um, prolonged exposure to THC, we do see CB1 receptor downregulation, which leads to increased HPA expression in ACTH of ACTH as well as stress hormones, which is leading to a problematic um, situation or environment. And then lastly, I will discuss the TRPV1 receptor changes. So TRPV1 is actually co-expressed alongside our CB1 receptors. Um, and it is thought that TRPV1 depletes substance P, which is a neurotransmitter that is associated with nausea or vomiting. So we'll just take a little zoom in here and we've got our receptors once again. So we've got our CRP or CB1 receptors in red, as well as our TRPV1 receptors in yellow. In a typical normal state, we would see that they are phosphorylated as represented by the blue triangles on the top of the receptor. In the presence of prolonged THC exposure, we do see dephosphorylation of the receptors, which leads to desensitization of the receptors, leading to a, an accumulation of substance P, therefore leading to a prolomatic environment. So that leads me to my first question. Which of the following is a hypothesis as to why cannabis can be pro-emetic? A, decreased expression of ACTH and stress hormones. B, lower THC concentrations in the blood. C, TRPV1 receptor dephosphorylation and desensitization. Or D, upregulation of CB1 receptors during stress. Great, so we're getting some responses in here. The answer that I was looking for was C. So um, in the setting of chronic cannabis use, as I discussed, we see an increased expression of THC and stress hormones. Um, B is incorrect because it, it's thought that higher THC concentrations is associated with a problematic environment. And then CD1 receptors are actually down-regulated during stress and in the setting of THC exposure. So then that leaves us with C, and that was the last hypothesis I talked about with the TRPV1 receptors being dephosphorylated and then the desensitization that comes with that. So what does this look like? It's associated with episodes of nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain in the setting of chronic cannabis use. Chronic use is typically defined as more than one year of use prior to symptoms onsetting. Symptoms will resolve with cannabis cessation, these episodes are typically present for at least three months prior to presentation, and the episodes themselves are typically longer or less than one week in duration. Regarding frequency, prior to diagnosis, it's thought that there would be more than three episodes in the last year, with at least two times being within the last six months. Patients can also present with this pathological bathing behavior, which is prolonged hot showers or baths. This is a non-specific finding. However, some patients can find temporary symptomatic relief associated with this, which is why I mentioned it here. It is also thought that frequency of cannabis use likely does play a role with the presentation of CHS. Most of the trials 
um, to date for CHS are with patients who use cannabis either daily or multiple times a day. And there have been some associations made between the amount of cannabis used as well as, well as the development of CHS. So increased quantities can lead to development of this as well. This slide is really just to kind of give you some other things you might be thinking about that could be on the differential. This is just some of the things. There are obviously other things that could come on the differential as well. The one that I want to point out is cyclical vomiting syndrome or CVS. Um, I will be discussing the differences between CVS and CHS on the following slides. So as you can see, based on this table, just with a quick glance, these look very similar in presentation. The three blue rows on the top are essential criteria for both um, sets of patients. So both sets of patients will have recurrent episodes of nausea and vomiting, vomiting as well as abdominal pain. They are comparatively well between the episodes that they have, and there's an absence of any other cause for what could be contributing to these symptoms. The purple um, rows here on the slide are major criteria that these patients could present with. However, it's not required for diagnosis. So both sets of patients may have a lack of response to our traditional antiemetics or the pain treatments we provide them. They may see symptomatic relief with hot showering or hot bathing. They could present with other symptoms like sweating, irritation, or agitation. The average duration is about three days. Or like I mentioned, it could be less than a week, which three days would fall in there. And then they eat normally between episodes. We're not talking about some sort of eating disorder related to this. You might see some weight loss for these patients, and they're typically relatively young patients being less than 50 years of age. So you might be wondering what really makes them different. Um, cyclical vomiting syndrome has been tied to um, different comorbidities, such as migraines or psychiatric comorbidities. These patients can present with possible rapid gastric emptying. Conversely, as you might expect, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome is related to chronic cannabis use. Patients do get better with cessation of cannabis, and they may present with delayed gastric emptying. There is some debate as to whether CHS is a subset of CBS or if they are separate conditions. However, the jury's kind of out on that at this time. Next, I'll discuss the realm four criteria. This is gonna sound pretty similar to what I previously discussed, but this is the diagnostic criteria that could be used. So it's going to have the episodic vomiting um, resembling CVS in terms of onset duration and frequency. The presentation is after excessive prolonged cannabis use. They have relief of episodes when cannabis is, um, when they stop using cannabis. And then they meet the criteria those three, three criteria for at least three months with symptom onset being at least six months prior to diagnosis. And then the criteria also does mention that it could be associated with that pathological bathing behavior. Some limitations that I'd like to share with the group about this criteria is that patients often may not be willing to share or be truthful regarding their cannabis use, especially in states like Wisconsin where it's not legalized. So that's something important to consider and then the criteria itself lacks a lot of specifics. So it doesn't talk about how many episodes they need to have um, or how much cannabis they need to use or even how long they need to stop using cannabis in order to see these symptoms resolve. There are three phases associated with CHS. The prodromal phase is associated with um, nausea and abdominal discomfort. 
it may also be accompanied by a fear of emesis that they've had these um, episodes before they know kind of what's coming next, which is the hyperemetic phase where they have those episodes of multiple vomitings. They eventually get to the recovery phase where symptoms improve and they go back to relative wellness and then they kind of cycle back through that when they hit another phase or hit another episode. That leads me to my second question. Which of the following symptoms is more suggestive of the diagnosis of CHS instead of CBS? A, cyclical vomiting episodes. B, chronic cannabis use. C, symptom relief via hot showering. Or D, lack of response to antiemetics. So it looks like most everyone is on the right page here. So um, based on that table, they do present very similarly. So um, they both have cyclical vomiting episodes, both sets of patients can actually have symptomatic relief via hot showering. So um, C is incorrect. And then both sets of patients can have a lack of response to our traditional anti-emetics. So that is also incorrect. So I was looking for B, um, chronic cannabis use as CHS is related to cannabis use, whereas CBS is not. So next we're on to treatment options. There are currently no guidelines for treatment. Um, so the data that I'll be presenting here is related to case studies or case series, as well as a few randomized controlled trials. Um, there are kind of three buckets associated with treatment options. We have our supportive care, which is really just about volume repletion. These patients have had multiple episodes of vomiting, so oftentimes they're dehydrated and we really need to focus on volume repletion for them. As I've mentioned, um, some patients can have um, relief of symptoms with hot showering or bathing. So our non-pharmacological agent would be hot water hydrotherapy or encouraging patients to seek um, the, uh, symptomatic relief with hot showering or bathing if it is found to be helpful for them. And then the next on the next few slides, I'll be discussing pharmacological options. There are seven that I will be discussing today with the first one being antiemetics. So our antiemetics are our serotonin antagonists as well as our dopaminergic antagonists. These are going to be our um, drugs like ondazotron, prochlorperazine, or promethazine. These are typically found to be ineffective for the treatment of CHS. You might see some symptomatic improvement potentially, but most of the time it is found to be ineffective. Next, we have benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines have been found to be beneficial in small case studies. The suspected mechanisms for why they're thought to be helpful include GABA agonism, which leads to antiemetic properties. They also think that it could potentially be related to the anoxalytic and sedative properties that would reduce abnormal um, sympathetic nervous system responses to stress. The studies that I looked at um, used clonazepam and it was one or two doses and that seemed to help with symptomatic relief for those patients. Next is haloperidol. Haloperidol has mostly been studied IV. However, there was one study that I saw that used oral. I'm not convinced that oral would be a great option in these patients as they are vomiting frequently. So I think IV is probably the better bet here, um, but it has been found to be beneficial in several small case studies, as well as one randomized controlled trial. The suspected mechanism is D2 receptor antagonism which leads to sedative and anti-emetic properties. And I'm actually gonna discuss the randomized control trial pretty quickly here, just because it is one of the better pieces of evidence we have. 
So it was published in 2021. It was a randomized triple blind crossover trial with up to three treatment periods per subject. So there was a low dose haloperidol at 0.05 milligrams per kilogram IV, and then a higher dose haloperidol at 0.1 milligram per kilogram IV. And then the third group was our ondazitron 8 milligram group. There were 30 patients involved in the trial, but there were only three that underwent crossover at any point during the trial. These patients needed to have a working diagnosis of hyperemesis caused by cannabis, and they needed to be in the emergency department with over two hours of witness emesis or retching. Patients were excluded from this trial if they had received an anti-emetic, anti-cholinergic, or anti-psychotic IV within the previous 24 hours. However, they were allowed diamond hydronate IV, um, 100 milligrams. The primary outcome they looked at was abdominal pain and nausea scores at two hours versus baseline. They did pull the haloperidol group together, so it's hard to tell if there was a um, difference between the two groups, but they compared that to the ondazitron group, and they did see a statistically significant reduction in abdominal pain and nausea scores. Additionally, they looked at time to discharge. This was also lower in the pooled haloperidol group. Um, again, a statistically significant finding. And then the last secondary outcome that I want to discuss is the use of um, rescue antibiotic prior to discharge. They did see a reduction in the pooled haloperidol group again, about a 50% reduction compared to the ondazitron group. They did not report a p-value associated with this, but I would say that this would be a statistically or a um, clinically significant difference. Some limitations to this trial that I just want to mention quickly is that they actually needed 80 patients in order to meet power. Um, the, the trial was stopped early due to the strong effect size that they were seeing with haloperidol. So only 30 patients ended up being on the trial. And there were actually few patients that underwent crossover as intended. So I think that that can be a limitation to think about as well. Next, I'll discuss droperidol. Droperidol has been studied IV at various doses, as you can see on the slide. It has been found to be beneficial in a systematic review as well as a retrospective review. The suspected mechanism is D2 receptor antagonism, leading to sedative and antiemetic properties similar to haloperidol. It has been associated with decreased antiemetic use as well as shorter hospital stay. Next, I will discuss apreptance. Apreptance. Um, was reported as beneficial in a case report. Of note, this was only one patient that I saw. Um, it has been utilized in chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting and has been found effective for gastro gastroparesis. Additionally, it is a recommended alternative prophylactic medication for patients with CVS or cyclical vomiting syndrome. I think that apreptin does have maybe a place in therapy moving forward as it is an NK1 receptor antagonist. Um, NK1 is actually an endogenous receptor for substance P. So when substance P acts upon NK1, it leads to emesis or can lead to emesis. So by using a prepotent to block the receptor, substance P cannot act upon it, therefore preventing emesis. So I think it'll be interesting to see if there's any more data that comes out in the coming years about a prepotent and the use of it in CHS. And then I will discuss olanzapine next. Olanzapine has been reported as beneficial in a case study. 
The proposed mechanism is combined antagonism of dopamine and serotonin type 2 receptors leading to antibiotic properties. It has been associated with temporary symptom improvement for patients. Again, it was a pretty small group, so it's hard to say the true effect size on that. And then lastly, um, as expected, I will be discussing topical capsaicin. Topical capsaicin has mixed effectiveness as reported from several retrospective reviews and case studies, as well as one randomized controlled trial. The proposed mechanism is TRPV1 activation in the skin. So once again, we have our receptor here. This time we have all three kinds of receptors. So we have our TRPV1 receptors in yellow, our CB1 receptors in red, and then our CB2 receptors in purple. And then we also have capsaicin as represented by the little red balls here. Um, capsaicin is a TRPV1 agonist, and it does have high specificity for the TRPV1 receptor. Of note, TRPV1 is also activated by temperatures greater than 43 degrees Celsius, which can be why patients potentially have some symptomatic relief associated with those hot showers or baths. When TRPV1 is acted upon, we see um, a decrease or inhibited release rather of substance P. And we actually see resensitization of the TRPV1 receptor when capsaicin acts upon it. So we talked about previously how in the setting of THC, we see the dephosphorylation and desensitization of the TRPV1 receptor, but capsaicin is actually resensitizing that receptor. So just a couple of pearls about capsaicin before we jump into the trials. There are several different formulations available um, over the counter. So cream, lotion, or patches. Um, as you can see, there are stars next to the lotion and patch. Um, even though it's available in these formulations, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to patients with CHS, at least at this time, it really seems like the cream is the only one that has been studied. Um, it, it would probably be safe, but just based on the available information, I would stick to the cream. Um, the cream is applied topically, typically to the abdomen for CHS patients. And while it hasn't been studied this way, I think it could safely be used up to three to four times daily as needed for symptom relief for these patients. It is available over the counter in various strengths between 0.025% and 0.1%. And the cost is relatively inexpensive at $10 to $20 per tube of roughly 40 grams of product. Really the only adverse effects we're worried with um, capsaicin cure is the tingling or burning that can occur with the um, topical application. So with that, I'll jump into our trials. The first one I'll discuss is the Dean et al. trial from 2020. It was a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial looking at using 5 grams of 0.1% capsaicin cream compared to placebo cream. There were 30 patients involved in the trial. 17 received capsaicin, while 13 received that placebo cream. Patients needed to be suspected of having CHS exacerbation and have active nausea or vomiting within the emergency department. They were excluded from the trial initially if they had received an antiemetic within the 24 hours of randomization. However, they did change the protocol halfway through to allow patients to participate if they received that antiemetic within the emergency department. Some baseline characteristics that I want to discuss and make you aware of include that there were more females in the capsaicin group compared to the placebo group. So there were six, about 60% of the patients in the capsaicin group 
um, were female compared to 40% in the placebo group. Most of the participants in this trial were African-American with 90% of the participants being so. There was actually re less cannabis use in the capsaicin group compared to the placebo group, at least what was reported. Um, for daily use, the capsaicin group reported 53% compared to 77% in our um, placebo group. So pretty significant there. And there was an increased baseline um, nausea score for the group that received placebo cream compared to the capsaicin group. Um, they used a visual analog scale to evaluate that. So just to kind of make sure everyone's on the same um, page here, visual analog scale is a scale from zero to 10 typically. It's often used to help patients describe their level of pain. However, it can be used to help describe severity of symptoms as well. And it can include the faces scale as shown here on the slide. So back to that baseline um, nausea. So the baseline nausea score was on that visual analog scale was higher for the placebo group compared to the capsaicin group with an average of 8.5 compared to seven or compared to six in the capsaicin group. The primary outcome they looked at was reported nausea on the visual analog scale as mentioned on um, 30 minutes after either intervention had been applied. They did see a difference between the two groups, however, not a statistically significant difference at this time when they looked. Some secondary outcomes they looked at, they did reevaluate nausea at 60 minutes, and this actually did result in a statistically significant difference between the placebo group and the capsaicin group. Additionally, they looked at vomiting within two hours of the intervention, which was quite a difference between the capsaicin group compared to the placebo group. While not a statistically significant finding, I would argue that this is a clinically significant finding. Additionally, they looked at need for rescue anti-emetic medication within two hours of the intervention. Again, lower within our capsaicin group compared to the placebo group. Not a statistically, statistically significant finding once again, but I would argue this is also a clinically significant finding. And then they looked at hospital admission rates, which was lower within the capsaicin group compared to the placebo group. Some limitations of the trial include that protocol change that I talked about initially. This would increase risk for selection bias. Um, and then they have a relatively small sample size with only 30 patients. Next, I'll discuss the USIF trial from 2021. This was a retrospective analysis looking at patients who had capsaicin documented in their charts. This is included 55 patients, 35 patients were given capsaicin and 20 patients were not. All 55 of these patients had capsaicin ordered for them. However, capsaicin was not on the formulary for this hospital. So only patient, patients were only able to receive it if um, a pharmacist was present. They did not talk about if patients did not receive capsaicin for other purposes though, like the patient refused or any other sort of thing that might've come up. Um, patients needed to meet CHS diagnosis criteria, which included um, meeting three of five of the following, abdominal pain, nausea or vomiting, weekly cannabis use, relief of symptoms with hot showers, and resolution of symptoms with cessation from cannabis. 
Um, one other thing I want to discuss before jumping into the outcomes is that there were more comorbidities within the capsaicin group compared to the group that did not receive capsaicin. 50% um, of the capsaicin group did have a comorbidity compared to 25% of the group that did not. They looked at time interval from capsaicin um, order time to patient discharge. They actually found that it was longer for the capsaicin group compared to the group that did not receive capsaicin. Not a statistically significant finding here, but I think that maybe the fact that it's not a formulary and required a pharmacist to be present would be a confounding factor associated with this finding. Secondary outcomes they looked at included the mean number of medications given after capsaicin was ordered. This was one medication additional in the capsaicin group compared to the group that did not receive capsaicin. Not a statistically significant finding there. And then they looked at return to emergency department within 72 hours. It was roughly the same with slightly more patients in the capsaicin group returning to the emergency department. Um, the p-value was not statistically significant. And then they looked at hospital admission rate, um, which was higher within the capsaicin group compared to the group that did not um, receive capsaicin. This was also not a statistically significant finding. Some limitations of this study, in my opinion, are that capsaicin was not on formulary, so I think that that could be confounding some of the um, outcomes they did find. The strength of capsaicin was also not standardized, so it could be related to the different strengths used potentially, but it's hard to tell. And then we have a small sample size once again. And then the last trial we'll discuss today is the Lee and Korolik trial, which was published earlier this year. It was a retrospective review of patients who received 0.025% capsaicin. It looked at 57 patients who had abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and reported using cannabis. Patients were excluded from this review if they um, were using capsaicin for another indication. This um, trial did not have a comparator group because it was just a retrospective review. So they did evaluate pre-capsaicin pain scores and post-capsaicin pain scores. We did see a reduction in those medians between the two groups. As you can see here on the left, um, the pre-score was eight, and then the post-score was eight and a, or five and a half. Uh, something important to note here is that um, only 87% of patients had a reported pre-capsaicin pain score, and even less patients had a post-capsaicin pain score, and only 67% of the Additional things that they looked at included the need for additional antiemetics after capsaicin was given. 42% of patients did not require an additional antiemetic. The median length of stay was eight hours in the emergency department. We don't have a comparator here, so it's hard to tell if that's changed with using capsaicin or not. And then they also looked at if they needed at least one additional dose of antibiotic after capsaicin was applied, and 47% of patients did need that. Limitations of this trial include that there is no comparator group, so it's hard to tell if it was having an effect or not. And again, we have a small sample size. So just to summarize what we saw in those trials, we did see symptomatic improvement with the DEAN trial. Um, additionally, while we did see a decreased use of antibiotics, in the DEAN trial as well. The p-value was not statistically significant, so I did make it a neutral finding here. Um, we did see decreased hospitalizations in the DEAN trial as well, but the p-value was, again, not statistically significant, so I made it neutral on the table. 
the use of trial did not have any statistically significant findings, um, though we did see increased med use um, with the capsaicin group. We saw a longer length of stay in the emergency department with the capsaicin group, and then we saw higher hospitalization rates. But I made it neutral because of the not statistically significant p-values. And then the Lee and Korolik group, like I mentioned, does not have p-values, but we did see a decrease in pain scores. So I would argue that's symptomatic improvement. We did see a decreased need for antiemetics. So um, I would say that that's an improvement associated with capsaicin. And then there was no comparator for the length of stay. So I made this a neutral finding here. Overall, I would argue that the data is pretty inconclusive. We do lack large well-designed trials up to this point though, um, but there is the potential for symptomatic resolution or at least symptom improvement associated with the use of capsaicin. I think it could potentially be used as a preventative medication for patients as it is available over the counter. Um, additionally, there are minimal risks associated with the use of capsaicin. As I mentioned, really the only adverse effect we're looking for is if they have any irritation associated with the topical application. So I would say that the benefits associated with using topical capsaicin outweigh the risks. One thing I just wanted to highlight quick is that the University of Virginia is currently recruiting for a randomized controlled trial using topical capsaicin in these patients. It's uh, scheduled to finish up at the end of the year and the outcomes they're looking at are here on the slide. They are gonna be randomized one-to-one -one, um, capsaicin to placebo. All patients are allowed to receive IV fluids, and then they are also allowed one to two traditional antiemetics. This leads me to my last question. Which of the following regarding the evidence for use of topical capsaicin in practice is correct? This is going to be very subjective, but um, we'll see what everyone kind of thinks. All right, and I would agree with everyone that has answered. Oh, <laughs> we have someone that went with C, but I would argue that the current evidence is unclear. Um, there's lots of mixed results, but I do think that the current evidence does support its practice at this point in time. So just to summarize what I discussed today, um, cyclical vomit, or it looks like cyclical vomiting syndrome, but um, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome is associated with cyclical episodes of nausea and vomiting, which can be accompanied by abdominal pain. In the setting of chronic cannabis use, we do see a relief of symptoms for these patients with um, cannabis cessation. Patients may present with pathological hot bathing or showering, which could be associated with tem temporary symptomatic relief for them. Treatment-wise, we um, may see that our traditional antiemetics are ineffective. There's currently a lack of large well-done studies at this time, but RCT data does support use of haloperidol and topical capsaicin. And case studies suggest there are potential benefits associated with the use of benzodiazepines, troperidol, apreptitins, and olanzapine. And we do see that there can be some symptomatic improvement um, associated with topical capsaicin. And I would say that the potential benefits associated with topical capsaicin outweigh any potential risks. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.